and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, Bent Tree Church. It's good to see you guys here. Uh, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. Before we jump in, though, uh, let me do this. Uh, uh, if you were here last week, you saw rivers of living water flowing from our church into the ditch. Uh, we had a main water line break. Many of you saw my email this week and responded. Thank you for your special giving to that. You can still give to that uh, over and above uh, your regular giving. If you would uh, want to give an offering, you'd certainly do that. Um, I want to just point out to you, they would kill me if they knew I was going to do this, so I didn't tell them. Um, both Pastor Hunter and Krista, who is our church administrator, and Krista's husband just put in a lion's share of work this week to get our uh, our building back in, uh, working, uh, flushing toilets. What a thankful uh, heart we have for that this morning, amen? Uh, so let's give God a hand for those guys Come on, let's not a golf clap. Yeah. They do a great job. They work behind the scenes so much and they make, uh, they make this church run smoothly on this. So, so thankful for our staff. And well, let's go deep too. I've been so excited to get to chapter eight that I thought we should work on chapter seven a little more. But brothers and sisters, this chapter is so jam-packed. I mean, talk about chapter 8 with good stuff. I want to make sure that we take it carefully and not miss anything. Uh, Our last time together, we went through the end of chapter 7, and as chapter 7 closes, we begin chapter 8, we find this awesome connection of Jesus' teaching back in verse 37 of chapter 7, 38, and then we connect it to verse 12 of chapter 8. Now, the story of the woman at the well right before this, uh, being caught in adultery, that's not the woman at the well, uh, the woman being caught in adultery, uh, Jesus Record, it's recorded in verses 1, really verses 53 through 11 uh, of chapter 8. We'll come back to that soon, God willing. Uh, but today I want us to look at this connection between chapter 7 and chapter 8. I think it's going to amaze us in its meaning here. Uh, before we go any further, let's just take a moment to pray and center our hearts. Would you bow your head with me? Hmm. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this building. We don't take it for granted. Uh, Even uh, water flowing last week and you doing this amazing work to get it fixed and all of that stuff. God, we thank you. But God, we know that this is just a tool. We really thank you for our freedom to meet and be together today. Thank you for the freedom Uh, that we have in you, Christ Jesus, that we are no longer under the slavery of sin, that you have set us free. And so, God, my prayer is that you would take these words uh, in your holy scripture and that you would apply it to our hearts. God, I pray that I would disappear, that people would forget about me and just remember your words. So, God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. Would your Holy Spirit just pour out on us? In Jesus Christ's name, all God's people said, amen. Remember in chapter uh, 22, uh, in chapter 7, and then uh, this 
part in chapter 8, starting in verse 12, takes place at the temple during the Feast of Booths. That's where we've been the, the last several weeks. Let's get some setting uh, that the people attending would know, some background that they would know, but may be invisible to us. So, you know, Jesus is speaking to this large crowd on the last day of the Feast of Booths. We know that. They're listening And we've covered how Jesus interacts with these religious leaders, how they got, uh, were there to try to get him arrested, to try to kill him. Nothing's worked. Uh, You remember last week, the end of chapter 7, they were talking about how um, the guards went and tried to arrest him. And and they came back and they said, where is he? And they said, well, his words were so just impactful to her heart. And, and so the religious leaders just insult them. So uh, here's the case. They're still there. It's the last day of the feast now. They're back. And we're, what we're going to read uh, is before they leave and then they go away and then they come back. So I'll, I'll make sure to point that out when it happens. This is the case. And this is the theme that we come back to in the story. So don't lose the theme. Jesus is preaching here. But what we want to do today is we want to cover the meaning of not just verse 37 and 38 that we looked at. Uh, baby, it's deep. I'm just saying we looked at it last week. We don't want to just cover the meaning. But here's something that will help, will help our perspective. During the week-long feast, there were two big events that would happen each and every day. And and I want us to look at that. They were symbols uh, that point to something else. The priests would carry these out, but they would point to something uh, else uh, there. So you you need to take notes on this. There's just a lot. Uh, Both of these symbols were to help people remember what God had done for them and for their ancestors Uh, When he delivered them, the Jewish people, out of slavery in Egypt. And they were in the desert. So I want to describe two ceremonies because these are central to what the people would be celebrating. What they would be thinking about. What they had just been a part of. God had provided for his people in the desert with two key events or processes. So to commemorate. What God had done way back for their ancestors in the desert is the first ceremony the priest would carry out first thing in the morning at the crack of dawn. You got this? Feast of booths every day, crack of dawn, they'd celebrate this. The priest would take this large golden container to the pool of Siloam and fill the gold container with water. You got that picture? Crack of dawn. They would carry the water in a great procession of people with choirs and musicians carrying behind it. And they would walk and carry this water back to the temple. Uh, They would carry this procession and it would be led by the high priest as the guys carried this big This thing of water, this container. And as the procession began to approach the water gate on the south side of the inner court of the temple, there would be three blasts from the shofar. You know, that's the the horn, the ram's horn that they would blow when it would be great joyous occasions. So the three blasts, boop, boop, boop. I was going to do the the actual shofar, but it sounded like... 
you know, so I did, I didn't want to do that sound. So then the priests walked in the procession around the altar. They walked in the altar. Then a choir would sing all of Psalm 113 to 118 called the Hillel. And when the choir reached Psalm 18, every male that were, was in this procession would hold up a, a myrtle branch in his right hand and then a piece of citrus fruit in his left hand as a sign of the harvest God had given them in the desert, the food in the desert. Then all the people in the procession would cry out three times in a loud voice, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Then the priest carrying the large golden container of water would slowly start to pour the water out onto the altar at the same time as the morning wine sacrifice was being poured onto the altar. They would pour this water, tons of water and wine onto the altar. The water and wine would pour over the altar, then onto the ground, then run down the steps and then run out the front of the temple. Every morning this would happen. Like a little river, the water flowed out along with the wine mixed together. Now this was done each day at the time of the feast of booths during that morning sacrifice. This is how everything opened every day. In that daily sacrifice, wine and water poured out into these, uh, with these bowls of, of wine poured out with the water from this big golden container. Uh, now there's some deep meaning here and foreshadowing going on uh, on Jesus' blood that would flow when he would die on the cross. Do you remember that? And do you remember when they would thrust the spear up in Jesus' side, blood and what flowed? Water. And for the Last Supper, when Jesus celebrated that very first communion, we know that he connected the symbolism of wine with representing what? His, his blood, right? And as his blood poured out as a sacrifice for sins, the perfect sacrifice. And then there's the connection back to the lambs that were slain as a sacrifice on that altar. And the vision where we see in the book of Revelation, in the last very book of, the, uh, of Revelation, the last chapter, we see rivers flowing right down the middle out from the temple out into the world. I'm telling you there's some deep stuff connected here. But it's important we stay on track. I just wanted to kind of wet your taste with the water, so to speak. So here's the meaning of the first ceremony as the priest celebrated that. Again, this is what the average Israelite would have been taught, but it's kind of invisible if we're not Jewish. The water as it flowed off the altar and mixed with the wine reminded the people of that day of God's provision of water in the desert, life-giving water. That's what they would have celebrated. Now, that's cool, but you've got to get this. The ceremony of water being poured out also to those people who celebrated the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit of God that would come in the last days. That's what they were looking forward to, that these Jews would be thinking of, that the Messiah would one day come and save his people. They were looking forward. That's what the ceremony meant. So looking back and looking forward. So the ceremony looked backward in time and celebrate what God had done for them 
in saving them in the desert. At the same time, it looked forward to this coming messianic age of peace that the Messiah would would bring in. It was a symbol of the coming messianic age in which streams of living water would come from the sacred rock that would be struck and would flow over the whole earth. Now you remember last week when we we reminded ourselves of the rock in the desert that Moses, God's servant, struck at God's direction that poured out water for all these people. And then remember how we said that that event foreshadowed Jesus being struck. Do you remember that? Being crucified and his blood flowed to save his people. Now, powerful, right? Powerful symbolism. Keep that in mind as we go forward. But it's with this fresh in people's mind that Jesus is in this ceremony, has just been completed, done each day that we read in John 7, verse 37, 38. Here it is. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you get that? Jesus has just connected all the dots for the people and the priest that he had promised that the Messiah would bring streams of living water to the whole earth. Jesus says that living water would come from those or come to those who believed in him, who placed their trust in him as Savior and Lord. And certainly we see that come true as Jesus is crucified, his blood and the water flows. In a sense, his blood is very much this living water that cleanses God's people from their sin. That's what pays for our sin. And in turn, our lives then would become rivers of living water. Just like the chief priest of the temple pouring out the water in the ceremony as they poured it out in that morning ceremony, Jesus is the chief priest that pours out his own life onto the altar. Powerful, isn't it? Now, here's tons more we could talk about even in the last chapter of the, of the Bible with the picture of the water flowing I told you about. But what I wanted us to see is in the context now as we move into chapter 8. Because there's a second ceremony that happens that day that we want to look at. Every night of the Feast of the Booths. So that first thing was in the morning. Every night in the Feast of Booths, when it would, the sun would set, four giant menorahs are lit. You remember the Jewish menorahs? They're giant. They would be lit, four of them, in the court of women. Now, it's called the court of women because that's where women could go, usually. That's where they would congregate. But they weren't there that night. They would be on the edges. That night, women were not in the court, but they would be on the sides looking in. And then pious men, good men, God-fearing men, would go down into the court, into the light. And then this ceremony held in the, at night in the Feast of Booth was this huge celebration described as, as being an exuberant Exciting time. Here's what it would look like. These four giant lamps are burning. These menorahs are lit. There's bright lights just pouring out over everything that would cast light onto the white walls of the temple itself. And so that wall, that would be reflected back. These men would dance through the night holding up torches, burning torches 
over their heads. And they would sing and they would dance and they, they would praise God in the light of these burning lamps. There would be these musicians that, that worked as kind of like our musicians. They would lead in worship. And, and since the outside of the walls of the temple were white... You could see this for miles and miles because it's on top of a temple, on top of a hill there. So the light from the torches just kind of poured out over this area and certainly over the temple walls. Similar to the water, the light flows out. You got the picture? The light poured out over that city. And because the temple was on top of that large hill, you could see it from far, far away. A city set on a hill. Now, why tell you all that? Why tell you all that? Because it's on this last night of the feast, in the context of the dancing, in the light and the celebration and the singing, we read this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Life. Now, This is the second of the great I am statements that we read in John. That Jesus makes about himself. John describes those for us, doesn't he? And remember back in chapter 6, Jesus had declared to the crowd, I am the bread of life. And remember whenever Jesus is using that I am phrase, it harkens back to the covenant name that God declares his name to be. He tells Moses, his servant, you tell the people, this is my name, I am. At the beginning, uh, we see the burning bush when God had told Moses, and Moses says, who do, you, who do I say your name is? And he says, I am who I am, the self-existent God. And what does God reply, he says, I am who I am, meaning he is the self-existent God. There is no one higher. He is not a created being, and he created all things. Amen? That was weak. That was like a golf amen. Amen? Okay. There is no one higher. He is not created. He created all things. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he very purposely identifies himself as God. God the Son. Everyone would have known that he was claiming divinity, especially the priests. Now, do you remember way back in John 1, when the apostle is describing Jesus, he says this in verse 4. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So when Jesus stands up and cries out among the men dancing and the women watching on, he says that I am the light of the world. The Jews know exactly what he's talking about. The light is clearly a metaphor that we see all through the Old Testament, but especially in this particular celebration. The light of the teachers and the lamps is is remembering, it's hearkening back again to the glory of God, the very presence of God. Here's what we mean. This is going to blow your mind. When we read the word glory, it is a way of using a picture of light coming through clouds. That's literally what glory means. Like when the sun hits a cloud from behind, we see its glory. So the light, the cloud shining, That's glory. 
That's the analogy. That's the picture. God uses that picture to explain his glory. Now think back once again to the Israelites in the desert as they have been delivered from Egyptian slavery. Uh, God had led them out of slavery. Now they're in the desert. Now we read in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, and the Lord, this is Yahweh, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. Do you have the picture here? God himself with his people in the desert wilderness, a pillar of cloud that would go up by day and would spread over them as a canopy. And by night it was this pillar of fire. You could call this a theophany. A theophany, in other words, a theophany is this manifestation of God in our world, his divine presence there in this physical form of this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It is God with his people every day, all day, for 40 years in the desert. Just think if you grew up. If you were born in the desert, if you were a a Jewish baby there, you grew up. For 40 years of your life, you would have seen God right there in your presence. This physical manifestation of God. And remember in John 7 and John 8, the Feast of Booths was about remembering God's presence in this pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. Now, one of the songs the Israelites would sing during the night of the Feast of Booths was this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? I wasn't going to do this, but I I love this. We sang this song growing up a lot. This is the first line. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? You can almost picture them singing this song, can't you? Right out of the Psalms. So what a comforting song of worship that we place our faith in God. Whom shall I fear? God is right there. They would sing many other Psalms as well and worship during the night of celebration with the light pouring out uh, when Jesus declares he is the light. He says, I am the light. The prophet Isaiah had prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, second half of verse 6. God says, I will make you, he's talking about Israel, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here's the thing, in both the context of the Feast of Booths, with such powerful ritual, when Jesus cries out, it must have made a huge impact. Now look at this again with me. Chapter 8. Verse 12 of John. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, years before Jesus came in the flesh to his people, the glory of God had left from Israel. The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night had been this physical representative uh, representation of God with them. And God's glory had even once 
filled the Holy of Holies inside the temple which uh, Jesus was standing near. But now the innermost part of the temple was empty. Even the lamps that commemorated the cloud had gone out inside the temple. Now in this context as Jesus cried out, I am the light of the world. I am the cloud. I am God with you. Here's, here was God once again with his people. Now, I want you to get there, get this. The clouds had gone away. That had been gone for years. And yet, God himself was standing in the temple. Do you see that? God was there in the flesh. Now, we can't put too much emphasis on that. That God clothed himself in flesh and came down. Now, I don't want us to miss this opportunity to ask you. Have you found Jesus? Is Jesus God with you? There's no other way to get to God without Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to put your trust in God. Now, if you've never come to Christ, believe in him the same way John the Apostle did. John testified about Jesus in John 1, 14. When you see the word word, it's referring to Jesus. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. God has made a way to come to the light. Come to Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You are in spiritual darkness. Now what we mean is that there is nothing. That can truly uh, make sense. Outside of the the work and life of Jesus Christ. Nothing fills the void, the needs, the wants, the desires of the body except that relationship with Jesus. The Apostle John says this also in 1 John chapter 1. So we're switching to 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is what? Light and in him was no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, talking about walking in sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Someone say amen. Amen. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And just to forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is powerful. What a wonderful promise that passage is. That we can leave the darkness. That we can come to the light in Christ Jesus. And we can have life. True life the way it was meant to be. Now, think back with me once again. To the Israelites in the desert as they followed God. This pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. For 40 years. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not. But God provides protection for his people with that cloud. I mean, God provides protection against enemies for sure. We saw that. But this is a different kind of protection, isn't it? Because without that cloud... 
the people would have died many years before they had ever made it to the promised land. Think about this. The Jewish people had two million plus individuals out on this desert with their animals for 40 years. The daytime temperatures, we said last week, could go from 140 to 150 degrees. At night, it gets well below freezing, even though it had been 140 degrees. I mean, just to survive in that harsh environment, they needed water. They needed shelter from the sun. Now, last week we talked about the rock that God instructs Moses to strike and the water pours out. You remember that? And remember, this is a picture of Jesus being struck and crucified for our life. It's a a foreshadowing of, but it was the cloud in the desert that provided the shelter as it spread out. It went up and spread out over the people as they camped, as they traveled. Now, this may mess your view up. But you need to understand, without the cloud, this is what the Jewish people celebrated of the protection of God. Without that cloud, without God's protection, they would have died in the desert. Now Jesus, just like the rock provided the water, is also the cloud. He protects us all, the people that believe and follow him. But then I want us to think about this. God's people, as they traveled through the desert on the way to the promised land, were not only protected by the cloud, but also led by it. I mean, they were guided by God through the desert. If you've never been in the desert before, there are very few landmarks. I remember growing up in Texas, working, uh, uh, hauling hay one time, and it was the summer of 1980. And... It was 113 degrees. And as I hauled hay, you have to wear long shirts and things, that hat, wide brim hat, and you're sweating, you're drinking. If you look around, you can't see beyond the edge of the fields. Do you know why? Mirages come in. It looks like water shimmering all the way around you. It's easy to lose sight in that. And even if your sight is limited by the heat, it's easy to just get lost in the desert. God leads his people by giving them a cloud to follow, day or not. When the cloud moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. They set up camp. Sometimes the cloud would stay in place for just one day. Sometimes the cloud would stay in place for more than a year. Now, you can read about this if you want to look further. Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23, describe that. But let's relate that pillar of cloud, that cloud that spread out to Jesus' words here in verse 12 of chapter 8. When Jesus cried out to the crowd, I am the light of the world, it was a clear reference to the cloud covering the people by day as they traveled, protecting them, and the fire by night. Now get this, he's not only claiming to be with his people and not only claiming to protect them, he is also claiming that he will guide them through the desert. Now write this down, this is important. When Jesus moves, we, his people, are to follow. When he stays in one place, we remain there until he moves. When Jesus moves, we, his people, are to follow. And when he stays in one place, we remain there until he moves. 
We get this, don't we? We understand. This is not a hard concept. Another way to say this is we abide in Jesus or we remain in Jesus. We are connected to him. In fact, Jesus uses this exact analogy here in John 15 when he says this to his disciples. Here it is, John 15, starting in verse 5, going through 11. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides or remains in me, I and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For, for apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will Abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If we are to follow Jesus in the desert of our lives, we must what? Remain in him. Abide with him. Stay under the cloud, if you will. We must constantly be connected to him. Not to just one day a week for an hour when we go to church, but every day, every moment. Like this analogy of the vine and the branches. If we follow Jesus, we must remain. We must abide in him. It helps us to avoid two massive problems that we face as believers. They're massive problems for in my life, and yet so simple at the same time. See if this is you. Number one. Believers can have the problem of moving too fast and following Jesus. Believers can have the problem of moving too fast in following Jesus. This has happened to me so many times in my life, brothers and sisters. Anybody else have the same problem? Yeah, we got some t-shirts we're going to pass out. Just kidding. I've, I've gone in the complete wrong direction sometimes going, God, you're going this way. Jesus, I'm going to go on, I'm going to step out. And he's on that, he's going that way. I just moved too fast before I watched him. I just assumed he was going this way. Or, or I went in the right direction, but the timing was off. I didn't wait on him. I didn't abide in him. I didn't stay under the cloud. Now, what's funny, but also very sad, is when that happens, I've gotten mad at God. Why should I be upset with God? I didn't wait for Jesus to move. Has this been your problem? And you can probably guess the other problems that many Christians face in trying to follow Jesus in their lives. I think this problem occurs probably more often than the first. And you probably have already guessed what it is because you move too fast. Here it is. Believers can have the problem of moving too slow or even not following Jesus at all. Believers can have the problem of moving too slow or even not following Jesus at all. I want to go off into another message here and call it 
lordship salvation. This is a false false doctrine that says, I'll take Jesus as Savior, but I'm not going to follow him as Lord. Listen, baby, that can't be the case. You follow Jesus as Savior, you follow him as Lord. In other words, he's the boss. But this has been a problem for me as well, moving too fast or not moving fast enough, not following Jesus with my whole heart. When I know he wants me to move or take action, we'll use that analogy. Using the analogy of a campsite in the desert that Jesus takes us to, I could get real comfortable with my little life where he puts me. And not want to move out when I see Jesus moving. Like the cloud moves and I don't want to move. I mean, my bed, my home, or my easy chair. Oh, my easy chair. Mm, How I love my easy chair. How I love comfortable spots in my life. But many times Jesus says, hey, move to the new campsite, to the new thing I want you to do in me. Now, for newer folks at Bent Tree, when we started Bent Tree Church 13 years ago, I had this idea of the church, and I would be the executive pastor, kind of like Pastor Hunter is, that runs the church. Uh, but I really sensed that God was leading me to preach, but I was like, no way, God. I know how to be an executive pastor. I'm a good executive pastor. So I carefully explained to God that really wasn't such a good idea to have me preach, because I'm not very good at it, God. I said... I, I mean, we'll play even, I even had this rationale. We'll even play videos of good preachers from other churches and I'll just run the church. I'll, I'll lead worship. I'll do that. I wanted to let God move, but I didn't want to follow him in my life. I wanted to stay comfortable with the idea of what I felt, what I knew I could do for God. Cousin, it doesn't work like that. Sometimes, many times, it takes stepping out in faith and trusting that God will equip you to do the very thing he's called you to do, even though you have no thought of how to do it. Let me just say, for some people in this room, I'm wondering whom God might be calling right now to step out in faith. What I mean is they don't see how they're equipped to do it. Listen, he will equip you. Maybe God is calling you to join a D3 group or maybe be trained up to even lead a D3 group. Maybe it's to join Pastor Hal on Wednesday nights with those student D3 groups. The fear of God just shot through some of you, didn't it? Like you thought, oh my goodness, what if middle schoolers ask me a question I can't answer? A high schooler that has a question that I don't know. Listen, God will equip you. Check this out. God's shadow is the only real place of God pouring out his grace and blessing. Now, I'm going to explain this. God's shadow, in other words, that picture of being under that cloud, being so close to him that his shadow is there, is is the only real place of God pouring out his grace and blessing. God simply does not pour out his grace and blessing on his people when they don't follow Jesus in his plan in their life. We must learn to stay in the shadow of Jesus under his covering, letting him lead us day or night. Now, let me clarify a couple of things that we don't mean by this. First, it does not mean that God drops all his care for you, leading and blessing you if you don't follow him exactly when he moves. That's not what we're saying. 
But what we are saying is that God has great plans for you to give you a life, to give you a purpose to serve Him in ministry. He has a purpose in giving you meaning in your life. And if you are not following God, or if we've slipped into some kind of sin, we'll miss some of the very best things that God has for you. He has planned for you because you're out wandering the desert. Out out from under the cloud. All right, second thing I want us to realize is that when we speak of God's blessing and protection of his people, that does not mean that we will not face suffering, pain, or even death. In fact, Jesus promises us that stuff exactly when we follow him. He told us that there will be people and even family members that will hate us for following Jesus. And we will all know that if Jesus doesn't return, look, our bodies will die. We get sick. We get cancer. We get, hello, pneumonia. If you didn't realize you almost lost your pastor in the spring with pneumonia. I was going, God, why am I sick? And I was reading through and I go, oh, yeah, yeah, suffering. The protection and the blessing that God promises is that even in spite of all of that suffering, the pain and death, death of people that we love, that our salvation is secure in Him and that He will use our life all the way until we make it finally home to heaven. Well, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot. But I want us to focus in, lock this in on our minds. As Jesus tells the crowd tells us that I am the light of the world, He is clearly claiming three things. Write this down. Claiming three things in John 8, 12. He is God with his people. He is God with his people. After Jesus' death, after his resurrection from the dead, on the morning of the third day, as Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, With the promise to return and take his followers home. Jesus makes this promise at the very end of the Great Commission. Do you remember this? Matthew 28 verse 20. The second half of that same verse. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Look at that word behold. It means to look, to see, to watch. He says, watch me for I am with you. Second thing is this, he is God and he will protect his people. He is God and he will protect his people. Does not mean we will not face suffering, death, even some of the roughest things that will happen in in this world will happen to Christians today. Why is this so important to us to know this? Because the threats of the world are real. They want to kill you. They want to destroy your family. Over and over again in scripture, we are reminded to fear not. We read this in Psalm 27 verse 1. The Lord Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Sorry, I keep try to keep singing to a minimum, but it just comes up. This is when I sing... The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? 
Sing that with me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Now listen, that does not mean that you and I don't face problems, even suffering, even pain, even our children facing that stuff. So what is it that Jesus is then protecting us from? From evil. Listen to me. From losing our salvation. From losing us. He goes, I won't lose you. That is a hallmark of Reformed theology. That he will not lose you. That your salvation doesn't rest on you. It rests on Jesus. He's promising us that we will, he will make it, uh, we will make it home to heaven with all the saints, all of us, so that there's nothing to fear. And then that last thing, thing that he is promising here in verse 12 of John 8 is he declares himself to be the light of the world. Look at this. Jesus claims three things in John 8, 12. He says, he is God and he will guide us home. Not only will he protect us on that journey, he will actually guide us home. Just like the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, he will guide us all the way to the promised land. Now when I say that, we are certainly to keep our eyes on the prize of heaven and the relationship with God for all eternity without the weight of sin. But while we are waiting to go home, we are making our way through this place, this wilderness. God is working through us. Now this gets, this gets at the heart of the matter. The Apostle Paul reminds us not only how we're saved, but what we're saved for. He says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he says, For, gra- for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walk in what? In good works. Notice that we're saved for a purpose. It's why we are born again, brought to life by the power of the Spirit of God. That's not us. God brought us to life. We are called to do good works, to follow Him, which He prepared when? Beforehand. Before time. Before we were born, He prepared your life for you to be in. Why? Why, why, why? So that you would be a light to the nations. That you would carry Jesus. But in life is hard. I get it. This is the crazy thing. Now hear me. Hear me brothers and sisters. Jesus Jesus promises us that life will be hard. It's full of suffering. But it's in that suffering. The light of Jesus comes forth. And casts light across our city. Across our world. There's a passage that we can take great comfort in. It's Psalm 33, uh, Psalm 32, verse 8. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Praise God for that, amen. 
This isn't just us on our own, that the Spirit works in us. Praise God for this truth. His eye does not leave us. How does he do that? How does God instruct us? How does he lead us? Well, Jesus promised us that the Holy Spirit would come upon his followers. The Apostle Paul tells believers in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit, Holy Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So let me ask you, do you have faith in Jesus? Do you believe that he is the son of God who came to save his followers from their sin? If you do, is the light of Christ shining out in your world from your life? If not, begin to follow him. Change teams. Go with team Jesus. Leave team Satan. Repent from your sin. Get baptized. Show the world that you're a believer. You say, what's baptism about? It's showing the world. You go, I'm going to get in that tank and have my sins washed away. That symbol of my death being buried and then raised to life. It is the one thing that you can't hide being all wet. And saying, look, I am standing with Jesus. Repent from your sins. Get baptized. Show the world that you're a believer and give yourself to him in faith to follow him for the rest of your days. And the grace of God will cover you, will cover your sin. You will become a child of God. The righteousness of Jesus will be given to you. Then you will no longer be walking in darkness. You will have the light of life that is in Christ Jesus. Well, I want to keep going. There's so much more In verse 12 that we're going to get to in following verses next week. But right here, let's pray and go to God. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Will you follow him? For you believers in Christ Jesus, have you sunk into that idea? Well, he's my savior, but not my Lord. Have you come to that place where you go, yeah, I see him moving. I'll get up there sometime, but not right now. I'm too busy with other things. Listen to me. Surrender to Jesus, Christian. Let his lordship come over you. Get back in touch. Abide, connect, dwell. Whatever word you want to use. Maybe it's right here that you need to repent of that sin. Or whatever sins that have been keeping you back. You say, hey, I want that sin more than Jesus. Repent of it. Stop that. I've been there too. I promise you. To get where Jesus is. Let him lead you. And listen, he may lead you to a place that you thought, well, I could never do that. God, I could never serve in that way. To tell people at work about Jesus. To be able to serve people in your community. To let your light shine. 
Believer, will you do that today? If you will, just pray to him right now. If you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, I want you to look up here at me for a moment. Christians, you just keep praying. If you're not a believer, you go, maybe it's all this stuff. You go, I don't know, Paul. Pray this. You go, Paul, I don't know if he's real. Well, pray that. Say, God, if you're real, would you speak to me right now? Would you bring me to life in your son? Help me to believe. Would you be willing to pray that? It's a dangerous prayer. Because if there really is a God of this universe, if he really did send his son, it will have a tremendous impact on you if you follow him, if you believe. We're not talking the rest of your life. We're talking for all eternity. You see, here's the thing. Your sin makes you an enemy of God. It makes you an enemy of God. But God says, I love you and I will send my son for you. Believe in him and your sins will be washed away. Not only that, the goodness of Jesus, we call it the righteousness of Jesus, is put into your account. So that no longer when you believe, are you an enemy of God? But you become a child of God. Joint heirs with Jesus. Like Jesus is your brother. He has purchased your freedom. Let me ask you, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, then turn your life over to Him. (laughs) Here's the crazy thing. If you've just believed, that's not you. That is the Spirit of God that has called you to life. You have seen the light. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, you have seen the light. Your eyes have been opened. So you just pray this. Heavenly Father, would you come and wash over me? I believe you right now. Would you change me? Pray this. I know it sounds funny. I don't know anything about anything. Would you help train me up in this church? Connect me to other brothers and sisters. Help me to be baptized and repent of my sins. But I don't know how. Would you show me? And what that prayer just did. It takes the first step of you stepping out in faith. And he'll answer that prayer. So end your prayer like this. Thank you for saving me, Jesus. Thank you for giving your life. God, thank you for loving me. And pouring out the punishment of my sin on your son. And giving me his life. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.